Thank you, Dan, and thank you, John, for standing guard. And I think many of us have probably experienced uh, that time when we're sitting in front of our computer, scrolling through Facebook or what have you, and we see uh, news such as this and, and the overwhelming uh, desire to help but not sure how to do that. And of course, uh, We're going to be in chapter 15, so if we can have God's Word open us up to chapter 15, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 21. Now this is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. When all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul And they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, Today's passage, Acts 15, recounts one of the most pivotal moments in the entire Bible. This story in Acts 15 is a true fork-in-the-road moment for the church. What happens here will change the course of history 
forever. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads thinking, did we read the right passage? Acts 15 is just about a church council, and they are discussing a disagreement among the people. They are debating the issues, and they are just coming to a decision. You can say that there's nothing really spectacular about this passage. It's just about another boring and long church meeting. However, the issue that's being deliberated is an important one. The issue that's being deliberated is a gospel issue. What is at stake in Acts 15 is the very essence of the gospel. If the first church council gets this wrong, the gospel becomes contaminated and potentially it's in danger of being lost forever. It's quite seismic, right? As we go through this passage, there are just a few things that I'd like to draw on um, as we in the church, as we the church in the 21st century reflect more and more upon what God is calling us to do. And the three things that I want to reflect on are this. Uh, First, gospel purity. Second, gospel wisdom. And the third, gospel character. So first, gospel purity. Second, gospel wisdom. And third, gospel character. First, gospel purity. Here's a rundown of the situation. Acts 15, this is the background and the context. After Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit is poured out among all the people... The gospel, becomes, the gospel is proclaimed, and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. Now, outside of a few individuals, the majority of believers, the majority of Christians, and by majority, I mean 99% of these people, they were ethnically and culturally Jewish, meaning All the Christians still went to the temple, they still observed Jewish holidays, they still circumcised their boys, and they all had very similar names, names like Levi and Benjamin, Miriam. Now, Jesus did make clear that Judaism was not a prerequisite to Christianity, so you didn't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Anyone, according to Jesus, Despite one's background, ethnicity, social status, economic status, anyone could come to God through Jesus. If you uh, are best friends with the president's son, you don't need any other reason or any other merit to have a relationship with him. You're best friends with his son. That's all that you need, and that is what Jesus is like for us. Through Jesus, we have full and instant access to God. Anything else, anything in addition, is unnecessary. But since the majority of Christians in the first century or during the time of Acts, since the majority of Christians during this time were also culturally Jewish from the outside, people thought Judaism, Christianity, they were indistinguishable. And from the inside, the two were often conflated. Imagine this, right? Imagine if everyone at the gym that you went to, imagine if everyone there was fit, muscular, toned, and had, you know, body fat of 8% and less. Everyone looked like a Peloton instructor, 
and a Lululemon model, right? (laughs) Even though there is no requirement to look a certain way to join that gym, people from the outside would think, oh, I need to look that way to join this gym. And worse, people inside the gym, what would they do? They would start to judge all new members according to this made-up standard. If they see new members, they would judge them thinking, well, you're not fit enough to be a part of this gym. See, that's what it was like uh, for the church during the time of Acts. Because everyone was culturally Jewish, from the outside, it seemed as though Christianity and Judaism, they were inseparable, and from the inside, people mistakenly conflated the two. However, something changed during Paul's first missionary journey. People with no relation to Judaism, no past history with Judaism, they were coming to faith in Jesus. Gentile churches were being planted, and while the substance was the same, the message was the same, the gospel was the same, salvation through Jesus, the dressing looked different. The dialect was slightly different. The customs were different. The singing was slightly different. People looked different. It was the same message, but it looked and felt different from, quote-unquote, normal. Now, some people, the Christians during this time, some people were, like, were excited to hear this. They thought, oh, wow, Gentiles are coming to faith. How exciting. But there were also some who questioned whether or not these Gentiles were fully Christian. And they thought, you know what, at the very least, at the very least, these Gentiles should be circumcised. This is what it says in Acts 15.1, if we can look. Here's what people were saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, this was the issue at hand. Is being a Christian nothing more and nothing less than following Jesus or Are there other basic requirements that one needs to fulfill in addition to following Jesus? Now, some of you might be thinking, why is this even a debate? This is an easy, open, shut case. What are we talking about here? However, it's not. It's not because we all have this tendency in us where we are more comfortable with people who look like us, who talk like us, who act like us. And we become uncomfortable and sometimes threatened when people who are different from us enter into the same community. Now, this feeling of being uncomfortable, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's a natural feeling, but this is the problem. It becomes a problem when this discomfort leads to attempts to conformity. In other words, you start thinking, you're different from me, so I'm going to try to change you to become like me. I'm neutral. I'm the one who's objective. And because you're different, you're a deviation, and you need to look like me. You need to talk like me. You need to become like me. This is a natural human response. We see this at the individual level, and we see this at the corporate level. We see this with nation states throughout history. This is what's going on 
in Acts 15. You see, the Jewish Christians, they were not bad people. They didn't have bad motives. In their own way, they were trying to preserve the gospel. So they started to add bare requirements. They said, at least circumcision. At least. That is the entry point. You need to be circumcised to be saved. But in their attempts to preserve the gospel, what they were doing was they were actually impairing it. They were stripping it of its power. I know there are a lot of good things that Christians are called to do. We're called to practice mercy and love, as we shared with the refugee resettlement. We're called to give to the poor and to the needy. We're called to pray. We're called to read the Bible. We're called to go to church. These are all good and important things, but they are not necessary for salvation. These good things are the fruits of being saved and the means of God's grace for his people, but they can never be requirements for salvation. If we say, come on, at the very least, if you want to be a Christian, you have to go to church. Come on, at the very least, you have to pray. If we make statements like that, thinking we're preserving the gospel, but the reality is the truth is, in fact, we are impairing it. We are stripping the gospel of its purity and its power. What that's like is you're putting the carriage in front of the horse. It has no ability to move. It's impaired. Friends, church, we have to resist this temptation, this temptation to modify or even supplement the gospel by adding to it. We preserve the gospel not by adding to it, but we preserve it by maintaining its purity. Now, I know sometimes when you cook, you know, you have this perfect recipe, and you follow it according, you know, and and it's great, but you think, you know what, if I just add this, it's going to be so much better. And for the church, we must resist that temptation. This is a temptation and a test that the church has always been under. You know, if you've been a part of a community for a long time, you know what this is like. Because a community always has a natural tendency to try to add more requirements or to make membership into the community more stringent as time goes on, right? Rules are always added. Rules are never taken away. New laws are always written. Old laws are rarely abolished. If you don't believe me, just read the minutes of your HOA or your local government meetings, It's just adding and adding and adding and adding. As a church, we have to fight the urge to add to the gospel. We think if we just add this, it would taste much better, it would sound much better, it would be received much better. But the command that we have received as the people of God is to safeguard the gospel, not to take liberty with it. You know, just one more point, one more thing before we move on to the next point. You know, Acts 15, this church council that's being called, this church council wasn't about church unity. The apostles and the elders, they didn't gather because there's fighting and disagreement, and what they're trying to do is come to some consensus. That's not what they're doing. That's not the primary motive. But the primary motive of this first church council is the purity 
of the gospel. In other words, church unity can be sacrificed, and it's often sacrificed for gospel purity. But it can't be the other way around. We cannot sacrifice gospel purity for the sake of church unity. Because if there is no gospel purity, church unity means nothing. So we find here in Acts 15, the the leaders of the church, the members of the church, they're all gathered. Why? Not to come to a consensus and be one and kumbaya, but they're gathered to preserve the purity of the gospel. That's what's on their heart. The second point that I want to I think we can draw from is this idea of gospel wisdom. Paul and Barnabas, the the passage begins, they're in dispute with some people who are insisting that circumcision is a requirement for salvation. Now, we're talking about Paul here. Paul. Paul is someone who received direct revelation from Jesus. Paul is someone who experienced and witnessed Gentiles coming to faith apart from Judaism. He saw this. He saw the work of the Spirit. But in his debate with the people, Paul, he doesn't appeal to any of these things. He doesn't dismiss them saying, you don't know what you're saying. He doesn't dismiss them by saying, do you know who I am? He doesn't appeal to self-authority. But what does Paul do? He trusts and he appeals to collective wisdom. Paul, travels to Jerusalem, the matter is before the apostles and the elders, and they begin to deliberate. Even the great apostle Paul trusts and depends upon the wisdom of others. You know, if you read Proverbs, right, Proverbs is a book all about wisdom, you'll notice that the person who is described as wise is actually someone who actively seeks out wisdom. Let me repeat that. Someone who is wise is someone who actively seeks out wisdom. I know it seems like a bit of a paradox, but that's what Proverbs does. So if you look here, Proverbs 1.5, the writer says this, let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. In other words, who is someone that's wise? Someone who's wise is someone who listens and increases learning and who seeks out guidance. See, a wise person is someone who acknowledges that he or she is not wise. And as a result, they're constantly seeking wisdom from God and from others. That's a wise person. On the other hand, who is a fool? A fool is someone who thinks he is wise and doesn't listen or seek the wisdom of others. Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool takes no place in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. In other words, if you think you're wise, you're actually a fool, but if you acknowledge you're a fool, then you're on the path to wisdom. A bit paradoxical, right? I think Proverbs 12, 15 says it well. It says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, Paul in Acts 15 could have simply dismissed these people as heretics. You have no idea what you're saying. Paul could have said, you know what? I don't have time for these silly debates. 
He heard from Jesus. He saw with his own eyes Gentiles coming to faith. But Paul still brings the issue up with others, and he trusts in their wisdom. You know, I think there are three types of people regarding wisdom. First, there are people who don't listen to others. They're right in their own eyes. They don't need advice, and they don't want the wisdom of others. Second, there are people who seek affirmation under the guise of wisdom seeking. In other words, they seek wisdom, but what they're really seeking is affirmation, right? They know what they want, and they know what they want to hear. They have their minds already made up, and they're only just fishing for the answers that they want under the pretense of seeking wisdom from others. The third type are people who sincerely and genuinely submit to the wisdom of others. They acknowledge, I don't have all the answers, and God placed brothers and sisters in my life for a reason, and I trust that they can be conduits of wisdom. Now, I don't want to generalize here, because by generalizing, you can often get in trouble, but I will, because I think it's helpful. You know, to generalize, I find that older people, they become like the first type unwilling to listen, stuck in their way, stubbornly trying to get people to see from their vantage point. They are wise in their own eyes. They think they've got it all together. They don't need the advice and the wisdom of others. On the other hand, I find that the younger generation of people are actually seekers of affirmation under the guise of wisdom seeking. They know what they want to hear, And that's what they're looking for. That's why for younger people, or the younger generation, if someone expresses an opinion different from yours, what do you do? You mute them, or worse, we tend to cancel them. But if they hold the same beliefs as you, what do you do? You amplify them, and you hold their words as gospel. I think social media has exacerbated this, as we're all living in our own echo chambers with the friends who hold the same views, we hit like on the things that we like, and we share the things that we agree with, and we're constantly in this echo chamber where we're just being affirmed. We're being affirmed over and over again. There's not much wisdom seeking going on. We're never challenged, never called out. An opinion that's different from ours, we never sit down to really listen to it and try to hear the other side. We're just seeking affirmation. But true biblical wisdom, for people of all ages, for all of us here this morning, true biblical wisdom is really a willingness to trust in the wisdom of others, even if it's difficult to listen to. If you have friends who think the same things you think, who talk the way you talk, and who just affirm you all the time in your beliefs and thoughts, I wonder if they're true friends. Now, this idea of wisdom might be new, but when you compare it to the gospel, it's almost a carbon copy. In other words, wisdom in Proverbs, it's almost a foreshadowing of the gospel. Because much like wisdom, right, the gospel tells us we can't save ourselves, right? As wisdom tells us, wisdom begins when we say we're a fool, so also the gospel begins when we acknowledge we can't save ourselves. 
And much like wisdom, the gospel tells us to do what? To trust in the words and the work of someone else, namely Jesus. Wisdom tells us, hey, listen, don't trust yourself, okay? Listen to what other people are saying. And the gospel is telling us the very same thing. Trust in the words of your Savior. And much like wisdom, the gospel tells us that we have to first acknowledge that we are sinners before we can become a saint. You know, these two verses, you know, these two verses, um, uh, Acts 15, 6 and 7, uh, if we can go to the next slide, this is what it says. And, you know, I, I really don't like this, these verses because it says this, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, after there, there had been much debate, after there was much debate, I hate this line, <laughs> I hate this line. What's going on in the first church council? Everyone is getting up to talk and talk and talk. They're debating and debating and debating and debating. Who's in the room? Peter, Paul, and James. These are the leaders of the Christian movement in the first century. They don't pull rank. They don't get up and say, listen, this is an easy matter. We'll settle it. We'll end the meeting earlier, and then we'll go meet at the pub next door. (laughs) They don't do that. They listen to everyone. They hear everyone out. These apostles, Peter, James, and Paul, I mean, these guys were people who were jockeying for power and position during Jesus' time. But what has biblical wisdom allowed them to do? To trust in the wisdom of others. They're listening. They're listening. The third and final thing I think we can draw on is gospel character. I want you to see carefully the manner in which Peter responds. Regarding the issue of whether one should or should not be circumcised, this is what Peter says, Acts 15, 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by Peter's argument as he stands up, after listening to all of this, as he tries to put a bow on it and draw some sort of conclusion, Peter's argument is not that, hey, don't require circumcision because they're different. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, listen, circumcision is a Jewish thing. We're Jews. They're Gentiles. They're separate. We're we're different. His argument is not that we're different, but his argument is we're the same. See, Peter's argument is by Jesus, through Jesus, there is no distinction between us and them. We are both saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And what Peter is doing is saying this, listen, circumcision has no bearing on them, but it also has no bearing on us as well. Peter doesn't say, listen, the Gentile church, they're just immature. They're a new church. They'll find circumcision valuable later on. Let's just, you know, work it into the long-term goal. That's not what he says. But as Peter, as an apostle who understands the importance of gospel purity, it leads to gospel maturity and humility as he realizes, you know what? What we've done doesn't matter. It has no bearing on us as well. Peter uses this moment to actually refocus and purify who? The Jerusalem church. 
You know, Peter goes on to make two really wise statements. You know, anyone who bashes Peter and thinks that he's just impulsive, brash, and stupid really needs to hear what he says here because I think these are just some of the most wise words that we have. Acts 15, 11, this is what Peter says. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I don't know if you picked up on that slight nuance. He doesn't say they will be saved just as we were. But what does he say? We will be saved just as they will. You see, what he, you see what's going on here? He gives the Gentile church precedence. He makes the minority group the standard. And this could have rubbed people the wrong way in so many ways. I mean, you can probably hear or see Jews, Jewish Christians being uncomfortable thinking, you know what, we're first. We're the children of Abraham. Jesus was a Jew. They should be saved just like us. But Peter says, no, we can be saved just like them. Peter wanting to show that God shows no favoritism, wanting to show that with the gospel, there is no primacy, there is no rank, there's no hierarchy. Peter operating once again from the purity of the gospel says, we can become like them. It's the 99% majority saying to the 1% minority, we are the same, there is no majority minority, we can become like you. That is a profound, profound statement. You know, often as Christians, for those of you who are Christians or who have been Christians for a long time, who've been part of a church for a really long time, whenever you see and hear new believers come to faith, often our position is always, wow, you know, I hope that they can someday become like me one day. I hope that they can mature and, you know, be a part of the life of the church and really grow. And while that's true, the opposite is also true. As Christians, when we see other people coming to faith, we should be thinking we can become like them. It should be a reminder of the call to the purity of the gospel where we are saved not by our works, but we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That is the reminder for us. You see, Peter is reminding the Jerusalem church, how did we even become saved? Was it really circumcision? Was it really because Abraham was our father? Or was it because through grace and faith in Jesus, we can become like them? The other statement that he makes, and I I think this is just incredible wisdom, 15.10, he says this. He says, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter has so much clarity here. What does he say? He says, listen, guys, guys, guys. It's not like we were good at this either. It's not like we had this down either. Why are you placing this burden on Gentile Christians? Guys, you know throughout history we've failed and we've messed up. We weren't good at this. Stop it. You know, Peter is able to see the weaknesses and the sins and the hypocrisy of his own people, of his self. And he says, you know what? For these people to come to faith in Jesus, 
don't put any barriers. Don't put any hindrances. Now, I do need to make one final comment because I think this is important. Towards the end, James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, he actually stands up. And it's interesting because James, is a, he's, he's, a, he's the Jew of the Jews, okay? Um, think among you who is like the most Philly person, right? That's what James is like. He's the Jew of the Jew. He gets up and he actually calls Peter Simeon, which is his Jewish name. So he still hasn't even, you know, he's not using Peter. He's still like very, very Jewish. And he says, listen, Simeon spoke some really good words. And he, he, and he tries to organize things. And he says, we should at least tell the Gentile church to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols from sexual immorality and from blood. Now, I have to just say, James here is not putting a requirement on the Gentile church, but James also, out of the sake of gospel purity and gospel wisdom, what he's doing is he knows that once the Gentile churches, you know, they go off, they are going to be a big hindrance and stumbling block to the Jews the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. And so James stands up and he says, listen, these things are really important to us. Culturally, you're not a Jew. Ethnically, you're not a Jew. These things are really important to us. And he appeals to them and says, would you keep these things? Because if Jewish Christians see them, they're going to be deeply offended. Would you at least do this for us? And there's this mutual appeal and agreement to keep the purity of the gospel but also to love their brothers and sisters and not be a stumbling block to one another. There's true gospel character and gospel maturity as they once again refocus their attention on how one can be saved. Just want to close this message just by saying, you know, I started by saying Acts 15 is one of the most pivotal passages. It is. Because if the apostles messed up, if they said, you know what, circumcision is required then the gospel, the purity of the gospel, could have been lost. But what I find amazing about Acts 15 is here are a bunch of men, women, leaders getting together. They have no idea what they're doing. They're all new to this. They've never experienced Gentiles coming to faith. I mean, the church is relatively, is only a few years old. And there's this seismic issue. And how does it get resolved? gets resolved through wisdom and through gospel purity. And this is not because these men were extraordinary men. But we find, once again, affirmation that the Spirit of Christ is leading His church. However flawed, however disunified, however messy all of this might look, disagreements and fighting and all of this, this nonsense that we might think, we find ultimately at the end the Spirit is leading the church The Spirit is preserving the gospel message, and it's going forth. Our church, you guys are all welcome to join in our session meeting, our diaconate meeting. Come join. See the messiness, see the brokenness, see the fighting, the disagreements, and the back and forth. And yes, after a long time of debating. (laughs) But we proceed with confidence not because we are wise and learned people, but because the Spirit has been given to the church to preserve the message of Christ to the day He returns.
This is our hope. This is our confidence. Would you join me in prayer at this time? Just a couple of things that we've talked about that you know perhaps you can reflect on whatever it is that spoke to you whether it's the issue of gospel purity whether whether it's the issue of gospel wisdom or gospel character and maturity humility you know we have to stop thinking they should be like us but in our hearts as we see people come to faith as we see new believers as we see others we should think we can become like them how often do we see the church overseas thinking you know what they have to be like us now that's not the way the gospel works as it humbles us and as we see that there is no distinction We are all saved by faith through grace in Christ. Would you take a few minutes just to reflect and pray? Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would renew our commitment and our calling to gospel purity. If we have placed any hindrances or barriers or any additional requirements to coming to faith, to salvation, we pray, Lord, that you would refocus us, that you would call us once again to the task of safeguarding the purity of this gospel message. So often, Lord, we can get ahead of ourselves and put the carriage before the horse. But Father, we pray that our message would be pure. It would be the pure message of Jesus. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we ask, Lord, also that you would grant to us biblical wisdom, gospel wisdom, a willingness to listen and hear and submit to the wisdom of others. Father, would you call us not to just seek affirmation or stubbornly just stand in our position holding our opinions, but would you call us as a community to be able to impart wisdom upon one another? Lord, give us great conviction that the brothers and sisters you have placed in our lives are channels of your wisdom. And Lord, we pray that we would not be afraid as a community to be able to speak into each other's lives. And Father, we finally pray 
for gospel character and maturity. Father, would you humble us? Would you humble us? Would you humble the oldest Christian, the one who's been a Christian the longest? Would you humble the leadership of the church, the elders and the deacons, the pastors? Humble those who've been a Christian for a long time. Would you restore unto all of us the joy of your salvation? Once again, remembering and being convicted that we are saved not by our works, not by our tenure or our longevity, not by how many years we've been in service of Christian ministry. But you would remind us all that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in this way, Spirit, we trust in your guidance and your, leader and your leading. We are flawed people. We don't know where or how or what is really going on. We are all new to this. But we trust that the Spirit, that you would preserve the purity of the gospel. And we trust this in the name and the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord.